you know, I, I wasn't planning on being here today, but uh, stuff happens. Um, but regardless of what happens, we know the one who's in charge. And he's working everything that happens for our good, both for our temporal good and for our eternal good. And uh, today, we're in Genesis chapter 2. And one of the things that you find when you look at this section of Scripture, because we've, we've looked at Genesis chapter 1 and we, we, we've covered that already, and we've started in Genesis chapter 2, but the first section of Genesis really goes from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, um, through part of verse 4. Well, this next section really begins with 2, verse 4, and it runs really all the way to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. And what you have in this specific section of Scripture is the story of the Garden of Eden. And one of the things that we, we talked about before is you cannot understand the end, if you don't understand what's going on in the beginning. So um, let's take a look at this scripture. Um, and let's start with Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the records of the heaven and earth concerning their creation at the time the, that the Lord God made the heavens and earth. No shrub on the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant on the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, and there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Delium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought to each, each to the man to see what he would name it. And whatever the man named a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, 
to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they became one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I, I pray that you would open the hearts and minds of every person here. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. And, and Lord, we, I pray that each one of us would draw closer to you uh, as, as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word. Lord, guide us. We sing in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, Bill preached through um, some of the first part of this, and I just want to recap just a few things here. Um, one of the things that you see, um, really starting at verse 4, is we see that God is referred to as the Lord God. Now, when you take a look at Genesis chapter 1, the word you find used for God is the word Elohim. And this is kind of a general term for God. Okay? But here, we see Yahweh Elohim. Well, the reason it's translated as Lord God is because, well, the Jews, they never pronounced his name, Yahweh. It was seen as too holy. So what they always did was they translated it as Adonai, or Lord. And in this case, it's the Lord God. One of the interesting things is, in the Torah, in the five books that Moses wrote, outside of Genesis chapter 2 and 3, he never uses, he only uses it one other time, and it's, it's uh, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 30. And I don't want to waste the time to go there because we have so much to cover. But when you take a look at Genesis chapter 2 and 3, he is referred to as the Lord God no less than 20 times. And what they're trying to do is, is this, it's not just God, it's the Lord God. The Lord who made a covenant with Israel. The Lord who did everything to introduce him to 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 Abraham's seed, the Lord who made a covenant with them, the Lord who cares about them the same way that he cares about you, the same way that he knows what's happening in your life. He's arranged everything for your good. You know, sometimes we look at our situation and we think, Where's God in all this? He's right there with you. If you belong to Him. If you belong to Him. He's right there with you. 
something else here. Um, let's go to check uh, verse 5. One of the things we see here is that he's giving a general description of the state of the earth here. He, he says, No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. When you look at verse 7, a few things are interesting here. You know, okay, so I'm decent with, with the Greek, with ancient Greek, okay? I can pick up a Greek text and more or less make my way through it. I'm not so good at Hebrew. I mean, I can recognize verb forms, but my vocabulary just isn't there. I know some Hebrew words, but, you know, I don't claim to be an expert at Hebrew. And one of the things that you see here, one of the things that, that I fully anticipated was when it says that the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. What, what I assumed was that they used, that Moses used the word ruach. Now, the word ruach is often translated as breath or spirit. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the word neshama. And here's the significance of neshama. It's used only of men and of God. Now, you're thinking, okay, Craig, that's, that's special. Um, why should I care? Let's take a look a little further down the page. Let's go to verse 15. Uh, well, let's see. Let's go to verse 19. I'm sorry. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. Well, when you look at the formation of man, God made man from the ground, just as he did with the animals. But here's the difference. God specifically breathes his breath into the man, and he doesn't just use the regular word, ruach. He uses neshama to emphasize that man is separate from the animals. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, 
the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man. In his own image, he created him. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And so one of the things that we see here with the use of this term neshama is that this is another way in which man is made after the image of God, in which man is made separate from every other living creature. Because man has God's breath in him, not in the same way that animals have their breath. Something else here, when we look at verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. Okay? The word for ground there is Adama. And you know, what some commentators believe is that basically is trying to show Adam's relationship to the dust, to the ground, because that's what he came out of. And you know, one of the things that happened is when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, from the ground you came, from the dust you came, and that's what you're going to go back to. Um, let's go back to the text. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. The word Eden means pleasant. In fact, um, Oh, let's see. It means delightful. So this place, Eden, we got a general idea where it is because, you know, he mentions that there are four rivers that come out of it. Uh, and, you know, we don't know where two of those rivers are, but we do know where two of the others are. And he mentions, you know, the Tigris and Euphrates, which still exist today. And so, you know, most Bible commentators place Eden somewhere in Armenia, um, near Mesopotamia. So it's an actual physical place. And this, this idea of Eden, well, it's this idea of an oasis. It's delightful. It's beautiful. In fact, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 13. And the situation we have here is after, after Abram and his family left Egypt. They've got all this wealth. Verse 8. So Abraham said to Lot, Please let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. 
Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked out and saw the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar was, Zoar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's God garden in the land of Egypt. And so the Lord's garden or the garden of Eden, it's well watered. Now, you have to remember this part of the world is largely what? Desert! And what you've got is a place with trees and rivers. It's well watered. It's beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. We also see another picture of Eden. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, what you have in Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel is prophesying to the king of Tyre, but he's also speaking to someone who is operating behind him. More specifically, he's talking to and about Satan here. And let's go to verse 11. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, with every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli and turquoise and and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold, They were prepared on the day that you were created. You were an anointed guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones from the day that you were created. You were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you guardian cherub from among the fiery stones. Now, what's the significance of all this? In Eden, it was on a mountain. Okay? And here's what the ancients thought. In general, when you look throughout the ancient Near East, they believed that the gods lived in the mountains, far away from everybody else, separate from the realm of men. Boy, that's a lot of noise there. It's like I'm full of wind or something. Yeah. So, um, what we see is that in Eden, yeah, it's set on this mountain. And there's water. It's lush. It's delightful. It's full of pleasure and beauty. 
But there's some other things we need to see when we look at Eden. When we take a look at verse 15, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work and watch over it. These are some interesting words that are used here. To work and to keep it. To work it and guard over it. We see these words used in numbers. Um, in numbers chapter 3. Let's go to numbers 3. Now let's go to verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them to the priest Aaron to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and the entire community before the tent of meeting by attending to the service of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and perform duties for the Israelites by attending to the service of the tabernacle. Now, this translation isn't the best, but it uses the ideas of guarding and keeping. See, the tribe of Levi was the tribe of the priests, and it was their job to guard and keep the temple. And one of the ideas that Moses is trying to get across here is that this Garden of Eden is really the first temple that you see in the Bible. In fact, one of the things that you see, because when you look throughout the, the entire scripture, you see three temples, really. This being the first one where man was a priest whose job it was to guard and to keep it. This temple was made by God for time. The next temple that we see, we see in ancient Israel. We see their temple, which was a temple made by man for time. The last temple that we see is in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. And this is a temple made by God for eternity. Now, what happens in a temple? A temple is a place where you meet with your God. And that's what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. We will meet with him for eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. Now, my Sunday school class, one of the things that we were talking about is that we need to operate with an eternal vision. All too often, we focus on the here and the now. But the Christian needs to operate 
like he is seeing eternity. I compared it to um, wearing night vision goggles. You know, our soldiers, our, our, our aviators, they will wear night vision goggles to see what everybody else can't see in the night. Those without Christ, where are they? They're in the darkness. They can't see eternal things. But if you belong to Christ, if you have his spirit operating in you, you need to be seeing eternity and living like you're seeing eternity. See, those soldiers, those aviators who wear those night vision goggles, they can make their way around obstacles in the darkest night. They they don't walk into things. They, well, they can make their way around without a problem. But you know what they have to do? They have to turn them on. Folks, if you belong to Christ, you have those eternal vision goggles. But you have to turn them on. And once you turn them on, you have to start living like you're seeing eternity. Because the more you do that, the clearer the picture gets. So, one thing... um, Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay? Now, when we look at verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So in the middle of the garden, you got these two separate trees. One, they're free to eat from. The other, they're forbidden to eat from. See, before, in, in chapter, in chapter two, when Adam and Eve are made, they're kind of like kids. You know, you know how kids are. You know, they, they do what you tell them in general. And, you know, and they're glad to get whatever gifts you give them. Unfortunately, like kids, sometimes they just want to do what they want to do. But we'll get to that in chapter 3, or whoever's going to preach chapter 3 will get to that next week. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. 
verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you'll certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Um, I remember um, when I was in seminary, and I was studying this passage before, and and uh, I was thinking about, okay, it uses the word help beat here. And I'm thinking, oh, gee, what does that mean exactly? And, you know, I... You know, Southwestern Seminary has the largest theological library in the world. <laughs> it would be even larger except for the fact that some of the students steal some of the books. But <laughs> sad but true. <laughs> and one of the books that I stumbled upon trying to find an answer to this was a book written by by a famous Old Testament scholar, Dr. David J. A. Kleins. And he wrote the title of this book, I'll never forget it. What does Eve do to help? And other readerly questions. So, you know, um, you know, Kleins looks at a, a whole bunch of things that Eve can do to help. And when he looks at Eve and everything, one of the things that's, that's made clear is that while she is equal to the man, she is very different from the man. I mean, okay. When he makes a helper, he doesn't make another Adam. You know, you've heard that old lame joke, you know, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you know. Um, he did not make another Adam. And what Klein's notes is that what Eve does to help is she helps the man to accomplish the first command that man is given, in Genesis chapter 1. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1. And let's take a look at verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Well, Eve would not have been any kind of help if Eve was just another man. What he had to make was something that was complementary to the man. And let's take a look at verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, 
That was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for man, no helper was found corresponding to him. Now, few things. As we saw earlier, God formed every living creature out of the ground. But they were different because they did not have his breath in them. Okay? Those other things were not made after the image of God as man was. Here's something else. The man, okay, he, he's he's got two jobs, okay? So he was supposed to guard the, 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 the uh, garden and keep it. But then he also has this other job of naming the animals, which I'm thinking is a good gig if you can get it. But in any case, when you name something in the ancient culture, if you name something, you have authority over it. Now, one of the things we saw when we looked at Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26, is that man was given dominion over all of the animals. And so this is part of fulfillment of that. He's naming all the creatures. But one of the things it says here, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal, but for man no helper was found corresponding to him. So, you know, you know, Adam saw, well, okay, these are two bears, and these are two giraffes, and these are two sharks, and these are two ostriches, and these are... And, you know, it must have dawned on him that, hey, there's only one of me. And it's probably at this point that it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and clothes of flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. So, it's interesting, um, you find a lot of commentaries about the fact that she was made from the rib of man. And Matthew Henry probably gives the best summation when he says, God made Eve, made the woman from his rib not from his head so that she could be over him and not from his feet so that he could stand on her, but from his rib where she would be beside him and his ribs are under his arm where, where he could hold her and near his heart where he could, where he would love her. Verse 23 says, And the man said, This one 
at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now, the first part of this verse, it says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is used a number of times throughout Scripture. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 29. So, you know, one of the places that, that we see this is in, is in Genesis chapter 29, verse 14, where it says, And you are of my bone and my flesh. And we see this used a number of other times, like in Judges chapter 9, verse 2, and 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, and Second Samuel chapter 19 verses 13 and 14 where, where basically people are, are recognizing their kinship, their relationship to someone by saying, you are of my flesh and blood. You are bone, you're of my bone, you're of my flesh. Here's something else. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from the man. Adam names her. What's the significance of naming? You have authority over it. You have dominion over it. Now, here's the thing. Both man and woman are made after the image of God. Both man and women are over the animals. But you know what? There is an order. The man is over the wife. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 5. Let's take a look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of the water by by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but also provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. You know, over the years, I've had to do my share of marital counseling, and let me tell you, I really don't enjoy that, especially being a single man. All I can do is just tell people what the word says and that they need to to live it out. And too many marital problems result from the fact that things are out of order in the household. In fact, as you go and you read the rest of Ephesians, it deals with the children as well. And what is clear here is that God has given the man the authority in the household. And if things are supposed to work right, I mean, if things are going to go smoothly, then you got to work according to the design. Okay? And the design is simple. There's a man, there's a woman. There's not two men, there's not two women. Or after a bird's fell, there's a possibility today in, in our society it could be a man and an animal. Or a man and a number of women. Or vice versa. God's design was for one man, for one woman. And that there was an order to the household. That's the design. And we shouldn't deviate from it. Verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and his, and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So here they are in the Garden of Eden. Beautiful, lush. They got access to everything. Folks, it's never going to be this good again. There's an order. You have the man... You have the woman, and then you have the animals. But it's interesting what you see when you start to look at chapter 3. Because when you look at chapter 3, the quick and dirty is this. You get a reversal of that order. You go from the animals to the woman to the man. In this rebellion. And once that rebellion happens. In chapter 3. Everything is broken. Nothing works quite right. Oh it still works. Still functions. But it's not the way it was meant to be. When you get to the end, in Genesis 
in, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you have what you have in Genesis 1 and 2. Man has communion with God. Man is living in a paradise. And man has access to the tree of life. But it's also interesting what you don't see in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. In fact, let's turn there real quick to chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So the first thing you don't see in this new heaven, this new earth, is you don't see a sea. Because as we discussed earlier, the sea was representative of disorder, of lawlessness, of chaos, of sin. Which is why, throughout the Bible, God does these great miracles dealing with water. Dividing the Red Sea, walking on the water, all of these sorts of things. Here's something else you don't see in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. You don't see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's a third thing you don't see in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. You don't see marriage. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. And let's go to verse 23. That same day, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came up to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second, also the third, and so on to all seven. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection then, Whose wife will she be of the seven? For they had all married her. And Jesus answered them, You're mistaken, because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. See, the angels don't marry. See, Marriage is something, marriage and family are something for time. They're not for eternity. Let me tell you something else that you're not going to see in the new heavens, in the new earth. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're not going to be there either. 
that new heaven, that new earth is only for those who know Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I hope we're all there. But if you do not know him today, don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know him today, um, yeah, there's an eternity for you too. But it's in another place. And it's apart from God. And it is an endless eternity separated from Him in a place that is not pleasant at all. If you do know Him, turn on those eternal goggles. Start looking at eternity. And live to glorify Him today. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You for the truth of Your Word. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone who doesn't know You, that you would bring them to repentance today. I, I pray that, Lord, that you would save them radically today. And, and Lord, for those of us who do know you, I, I pray that, Lord, that we would strive to glorify you in every aspect of our lives. Lord, help us to be the people that you'd have us to be. Help us to love what you love. Help us to hate what you hate. Help us to glorify you. Lord, guide us. These things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.